you'll open your Bibles to John 15, I want to just kind of finish up. We, um, we, we got to the part last week about abiding in Christ. We got to the part about how the Father, there are certain things in which God the Father is represented in John 15 as being a vine dresser. It's an agricultural analogy that describes union with Christ, our relationship with Christ, authored by the Holy Spirit. And um, let's just read the text real quick, get it before us. And uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, there's going to be just a little bit of uh, a little bit of review, and then I want to finish up at the latter part of of um, verses uh, nine through eleven, and really emphasize that tonight. Before we read, just a quick trivial note here: uh, the World Series starts tonight. Um, anybody know who's in it? Giants and the Rangers. Uh, Rangers' first trip to the big show, as they say. And for those of you who are interested in sports trivia, tomorrow night, uh, Matt Cain pitches for the Giants, and he's a product of Houston High School. So uh, about, I guess, they play about 7 o'clock tomorrow night, and you'll see a homeboy pitching for the San Francisco Giants. That starts tonight. Josh Hamilton, who plays for the Rangers, um, signed a big bonus, and um, his life began to deteriorate and fall apart, fell into drug addiction, ha- had lost the promise of a brilliant baseball career because of, uh, because of his sin choices that resulted in, in a, a great enslavement. And the Lord brought him out of darkness. He, he set, as uh, Psalm 40 says, um, He brought my feet out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a solid rock, and He gave me a new song to sing. And Josh Hamilton is um, a living testimony to the grace and kindness of God. So he plays for the Rangers. Um, That has nothing to do with anything tonight. John chapter 15, verse 1 and 11. Here we go. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. In verse 3, already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus uses a a familiar biblical analogy here to describe his relationship with his people. Israel was described as a vine in the Old Testament. Israel was depicted as a vine, for example, in um, Psalm chapter 80. Israel was depicted as a vine in Isaiah chapter 5, Jeremiah 2, Hosea chapter 10. In all these analogies that shows Israel as a vine that the Lord planted, also show Israel as bearing fruit, not for the Lord, but bearing the fruit of rebellion, bearing the fruit of disobedience. They gloried in themselves, and therefore they did not bear the kind of fruit that the Lord expected. In many ways, in many ways, 
Jesus is the fulfillment of important Old Testament images. For example, the scripture calls him plainly the second man, the Lord from heaven, or the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, where God's son, and in Luke chapter 3 calls Adam the son of God, and Luke chapter 3 calls Jesus the son of God. So, where Adam failed, Christ would succeed in obedience. Jesus is called the true Israel. Where Israel failed, Christ would succeed. So this analogy here originally applied to the Lord's people who failed to bring forth the kind of fruit that would honor the Lord. Jesus will succeed and he will bear the kind of fruit that God is honored in, the kind of fruit that God is glorified in. And as a result of our relationship with him in which we're united with him, both in his life, in his death, his resurrection. As a result of that relationship, which is analogous to a vine producing the fruit, that reality of that relationship bears fruit in our lives. Last week we looked at how, how with the analogy of God being the vine dresser, that there are at least three activities in this text that describes God's activity in our life so that we might bear the fruit of our united relationship with Christ. For example, in verse 2, God is said to be the one that creates the conditions that cause us to produce the kind of fruit that honors Him. In verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. I I don't know what translations you have here, but I'm reading from the English Standard Version in verse 2. When the scripture says that the vine dresser takes away, it's a Greek word, um, Iro, A-I-R-O. And if you have an NIV, maybe, or some other translations, it will say every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he lifts up. That's really probably the better translation. Because it describes the activity of one who keeps a vineyard of taking a, a branch that's running along the ground and lifting that branch up off the ground so that it is exposed to the sun and the rain. Many, many years ago, when our kids were small, uh, Melinda and I thought it would be fun to raise a few things in our backyard. We were in Martin, Tennessee, and O'Gill, Mike's a UTM graduate, and maybe others of you, and so we, we lived uh, 402 Walters, and we decided for the benefit of our kids and so on, that, um, and our love of fresh vegetables in the, in the summer, that we, we put out some tomatoes, we put out squash, we put out... Uh, I think we put out cantaloupe uh, and we put out okra and other things. The only thing that prolifically produced was okra. We had more okra than you could imagine. It turned out to be like a grade B horror movie at the drive-in. You know, the giant okra that ate Martin. I mean, it just continued to produce. We discovered that every time you would you would pluck the, the okra itself, more would produce. We finally had to dig it up by the roots. It was a nightmare. But one thing, one thing we discovered, however, is that you had to tend the garden. That's the part I hated. I didn't mind the harvest. It was the tending that really bothered me. It just really, I grew to appreciate the curse uh, by having that just little patch of garden in the backyard. Um, it had to be kept up. The analogy here of a relationship with Christ that's analogous to this agricultural image is that God creates the conditions in our life that causes that kind of growth. He exposes us to the things that will produce growth in our life. 
Secondly, He cleanses us. We looked at that last week. It's verse 3. Um, the word in the English Standard Version is the word prunes, but you may have a version that talks about cleanses, that, that through, through God's activity, we're cleansed. And the medium of the cleansing is the Word of God. Ephesians 5 says that Christ washes His church by the water of the Word. Our, our minds are bathed, our imaginations are bathed in the Word of God. It, it reorients our thinking. It's what Paul called in Romans 12 a renewing process where our minds are renewed along the lines of truth and not along the lines of error. And then last week we looked at how the, not only does, does God as a vine dresser create the conditions, cleanse us through the Word of God, but He also calls us into this fellowship in which we're supposed to remain. In these 11 verses, the word remain or abide occurs 10 times. We're brought into a relationship, and that relationship is, is to remain vital and healthy. We're to remain in close relational proximity to Christ. And the outcome of that, then, is that we bear fruit. Now, here's the funny thing about the cleansing action of the Word of God. Funny as in an irony. We may appear, we come to Christ, and there are certain things that may just fall off of us. I'll give you a quick analogy. I'll tell on myself. I graduated from the University of Memphis in 1979. I was a year ahead of a friend of mine. I've told this uh, previously in different contexts, so bear with me if you've heard it. Uh, but a friend of mine, this was in the old days for you Memphis folks, when registration took place in the field house. This is pre-computer days. This is punch card days. Um, so you had to wait wait through these long lines in the field house. And a friend of mine was working registration. I'd graduated in May. He said, give me your ID and I will renew it so that you'll have the status of a student. That way I could come and go. I could go to the library. I could go to sporting events. I could use the PE facility just as though I were a student. So I gave it to him. That was um, that was sometime in the summer, I think, for summer school. Well, the fall semester rolled around. He said, hey, we're getting ready to start the registration process. Give me your ID so that I can renew it. In August of 79, the Lord did something in my life. I'm, I'm not prepared to say that, that I came to Christ, but he did something in my life. It Definite. So I said, I can't do that, David. He said, why not? And I said, because it's dishonest. I'm not a student. He said, you did it in the spring. And I said, it wasn't right then either. Uh, it was dishonest then. I'm not going to do it this time. Now, before you congratulate me on my integrity, there are some things that when you come to Christ and God begins to work in your life, things begin to happen. Some things just fall off. But there are other things that are persistently stubborn in your life. Jerry Bridges wrote a book entitled Respectable Sins. And my own personal experience, just speaking candidly with you, is that there may be, I mean, my bank robbing stopped overnight when I came to Christ. I just I threw away the ski mask. I turned in my pistol. I was done. But there are some things that are more subtle that, you know, anger issues, lust issues, pornography issues, unforgiveness issues, pride. Boy, that's a good one. You know, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said pride's the very thing that made the devil the devil. That's a respectable sin. We call it self-esteem. So there are other issues that may be respectable sins. Slander, gossip, sowing discord among brothers, covetousness, envy, the love of appearance, fearing man, uh, the love of, of acclamation, of adoration, the love of pretense and posturing and being seen to be something. And all those things of 
that, that we kind of revel in in the South. You know, the right schools, the right place, the right clothes, the right neighborhood, all those things that make us feel better about ourselves, those are more stubborn and persistent. It takes a work of the Spirit to produce true humility so that we're not really proud of the humility that, that we claim to be servants and we're not actually angered when people treat us like servants. That takes a work of the Spirit. It's like uh, it's like video games. You play video games? Probably not. It's a pretty sophisticated crowd. Well, let's say you did play video games. You know there are levels in video games. You know, you can get level one. If you get through level one, you go to level two. You get through level two, level three, and so on. My kids are small. I'm dating myself here. But they, they had the Nintendo games with Super Mario and so on. I enjoyed playing them more than they did. Because I keep telling myself, I can get to this next level. I know I can get to this. It's almost addictive. Well, this is what the cleansing activity of God's Word does in our life. Some things are lopped off. Your bank robbing stops overnight. It's going to be a longer time where He's going to have to get into your life and begin to unroot the pride that's there. Where those those other issues, you know, the issues of the tongue, the issues of the heart, the issues of the motivation, those more subtle, refined things that we live with and accept because it's who we are, we, we accept anger. We accept control issues because it is so woven into the fabric of our personality that we can't really see it for what it is. See, the anecdote to all the, the products of our flesh in Galatians 5, 17 and so on, and we naturally produce them. We naturally produce envy. We naturally produce anger. We naturally produce all these other things. The anecdote for that is not work harder, be better, try harder. It, it's not more books on tape. It takes a real genuine work authored by the Holy Spirit using the Word of God so that we're led over and over again to specific confession, intelligent repentance, and a continual dying to ourselves and taking up the cross and being enabled to follow Christ. There are whole family dysfunctions that we develop in our immediate families. There are dysfunctions that you've brought from your family upbringing. You've brought them into your home and we unthinkingly do them. I mean, how many of us here as parents have not said the very things to our children that we said we'd never say, that was said to us in the heat of the moment we say it? You know, kind things like that, like, I don't know, I'm going to tear your arm off and beat you over the head with it. Um, you know, the things that you said you'd never say to your children, and in the heat of the moment, you're threatening them like that. And there, years ago, a guy told me that when we lived in Florida, he said, you know, the other day, the funniest thing happened. I said, what? He said, I was, I was shaving and I rinsed my face off, and when I looked in the mirror, I suddenly realized I'd shaved the face of my father. I had become my dad. I'd become the very man that I said I wouldn't become, and I had become him. That takes a work of the Holy Spirit. And so you've got all these levels. About three or four years ago, we had a Bradford pear in our front yard, and a storm came through, and you know they're fragile. The older are, the more fragile they become. And a limb broke and had, had, had uh, fallen out in the street. So I went to Home Depot and I got me one of these little $50 chainsaws. And uh, I put on a flannel uh, checkerboard shirt. Got my work boots on. Plug it a back. And, uh, rawr, rawr. and um, I, so I cut the thing up. But it was my chainsaw <laughs> and the skill of the operator. It's a wonder I hadn't lopped a limb off on my torso. Um that eventually I got someone to uh, to take the whole thing down and dig the stump up. And so for about a year or so, 
The grass started to grow, had it sodded, it was looking good. And one day I backed out of my drive in the spring, and lo and behold, I saw these twigs popping up where that Bradford pear had been. And at first I could pull them up when I mowed the yard, and then they got so tough I couldn't pull them up. One day I'm backing out, and these twigs I'd already pulled up several times, I saw them poking up, and I thought, now it's just like my life. Things I think I've dealt with and I've conquered. One day, bloop, I've got a twig. I thought I was long over over my issues as a dad, you know, until we started keeping our grandkids. And it all came back to me. Those twigs. Little boy pushing a bike down the street one day. and uh, Or he's pushing his moor down the street one day and he saw pastor in his garage oiling a bike and shining it up. And the little boy said, Hey, uh, mister, what would you take for the bike? And so the pastor said, Well, you know, I, I need a more. How about we just swap? So the boy said, Done. A few weeks later, the boy's riding his bike by and he sees a pastor pulling and pulling and pulling. So he stops and says, How's that, how's that more working for you? He says, Well, not very good. I can't get it started. He said, Well, just give it a good cussing. That's what my daddy does. He said, well, he said, I, I can't use that kind of language, son. I'm a pastor. He said, you keep pulling on it, it'll all come back to you. <laughs> it'll all come back to you. It'll all come back to you. So when the Scripture talks about the activity of God, we never arrive. This is an ongoing activity. And then we get down to where Jesus is talking about the kind of fruit that this relationship begins to produce in our lives. And just just very quickly, one of the first things, look at verse 7. One of the things that shows up that's produced in our lives relates to this whole matter of prayer. Now, this seems like a carte blanche in verse 7. Abide in me and my words in you and ask what you will. It's an imperative. It's a command. Ask what you will and it will be done for you. Well, that's all us 21st century suburban American types need, isn't it? Is the magic wand of prayer. David Paulison in Sing with New Eyes in the opening chapter of the introduction of the book says that as evangelical Americans, we're preoccupied with using the Bible to better manage our idols, the idols of marriage, children, and money and career. So when Jesus says, abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you will, the caveat there in verse 7 is that our prayer life, our prayers are shaped by a relational dynamic in which the Word of God is sinking into our hearts and our prayers become increasingly shaped and patterned by the Word of God. Now, this is no indictment of anyone. This is only an observation. And I mean absolutely nothing by this. Absolutely nothing by this. I may have said this in here recently. But when I look at the prayers of Christ and I look at the prayers of Paul, I look at the sorts of things they prayed for, Two chapters over, John 17, Jesus praying that the glory that he had with the Father before the world would be restored and those who are his would behold that glory and that the world would know that the Father loves the disciples of Christ as the Father loved Jesus. Those are the kinds of things, spiritual realities for which Jesus prays. No indictment of anyone here. But my prayer life is often so self-preoccupied with temporal needs and material issues that the larger issues of praying for 
Christ to be formed in my life, for Christ to be formed in your life, for the fruit of the Spirit, for there to be love and joy and peace and self-control and kindness and gentleness and, and patience by which God would be honored and glorified is almost nowhere on my list because I'm preoccupied with health challenges, with children, with financial stress. I'm not minimizing. I've had all of those. I've had them all at one time. And it will make you pray. Financial pressure is like the boulder in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first one. That boulder is always chasing you. It's always after you. So I'm not minimizing any of those. But when he talks, when Jesus is talking about prayer, he's talking about a relationship that over a period of time, my prayer life is transformed by an enlarged prayer agenda so that I am praying maybe according to how Jesus taught us to pray in Luke 11, 1. Lord, teach us to pray. Pray after this manner. Our Father which art in heaven. And what are the first things that, that a disciple would pray for? Hallowed be your name. Let your name be glorious and sacred. And, and that name being a summary of all of God's character and nature. Let your character be reverenced and known. Let your name be hallowed in my life and in the lives of my family and in the lives of the people who call you by name and in the nations around the world. Let your glory be known and demonstrated so that more and more people would come to see you as all glorious. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, your will be done. And we, your, your, um, Prayer life then begins where Jesus began. And finally we get down to the daily bread. But we come to the Lord as He is sovereign and we're His subjects. And so we are amenable to His will. Grant me the grace to accept Your will. And there there are aspects of the will of God. There are those decretive aspects, which is called the, the secret will of God. Things that He's determined will happen. And there is preceptive will of God, which is revealed in the Scripture. I I don't know about this, but I do know about this. And quite frankly, I know enough about this that troubles me when I look at my life compared to this, let alone worrying about what I have no control over. So part of praying is like Jesus in the garden, or not my will, but your will be done. Give me grace to accept what you've ordained to happen in my life. Hebrews 9 says, there's a day appointed for all of us. There's a day appointed for all of us. Psalm 139 says that the days were written in the book before there were ever one of them for all of us. So there's so much about my life I don't understand, and it will unfold. Give me grace to accept what you intend for me. Help me to rejoice in it, to embrace it. And then help me to have Christ formed in my life. Now give me my daily bread, O God. So prayer then is shaped by a relational reality. And then then you, you've got the whole issue, the next issue, you've got the whole issue of um, of prayer. Not of prayer, but of, uh, of um, love, for example. The, the whole issue of, of love, and just very quickly, I think that's verse 9, abide in my love as, I've, as I have abided in the Father's love. And if you're in the first hour of class, this is going to be a little bit of a review. But in, at least in the in the original text, Greek text, 
there are the words eros, there is the word philia, and there is the word agape. This is where the culture lives. This We get the word um, the sexual desire, erotic, eroticism. This is sensual desire. This is where the culture lives. This is what's maximized in our culture. It's maximized in our movies, our television programs, print media, and so on. You go through the checkout line at Kroger, and, and you look at the at the tabloid magazines. This is what's emphasized. W- one commentator uh, who did a word study on the various words. It may have been it may have been Trench. Um, this is self preoccupied, self serving, self gratifying. And this is never satisfied by the consuming. That's why lust can never be satisfied. It always breeds more lust. Lust is never satisfied. It demands more. It requires more. This is where the culture lives. Philea is the love of friends. This is friendship. This is I love you because you love me. I like you because you pull for the volunteers. I like you because you voted for my candidates. Uh, this is a because of love. And that comes quite natural to us as well. But this kind of love is an in spite of love. It is not self-centered, it's other-centered. It's sacrificial. It's transforming. It's redemptive. It's the kind of love that Jesus speaks of in verse 13 when he talks about a man laying down his life for his friends. This is the kind of love that God calls us men to in, in leadership in our home in Ephesians 5. It's sacrificial and redemptive. It's modeled by Christ. It's not modeled by a CEO. It's not modeled by the rich and powerful. The leadership model of Jesus takes the leadership that is prized and celebrated and applauded in our culture. It takes that model of a man on top in control of his domain and it flips it upside down and calls that man to be a servant. That is as foreign to us as daylight is to darkness. And if this would be redeemed, if my self-serving, self-gratifying, sensually driven life living by what I see and by what I want. If my loving you because you love me and because you're doing good things for me, I'll do good things for you. If I'm to ever reclaim this kind of love, it will be because the Holy Spirit of Christ has filled my life and reclaimed those areas of my life. And that's not an overnight issue. That's a lifetime issue. A lifetime issue of abiding in Christ and those relational realities being transformed to where I'm not looking at people as objects to be consumed visually or personally. I'm not looking at people that I like you and love you. This is the, this is Matthew 5. What reward do you have you if you love those who love you? This, this is, this is politics. This is fallen life. This is a greater work of the Holy Spirit in which I can forgive and bless and pray for those who use me and persecute me and so on because I'm abiding in Christ and He's abiding in me. And this then compels obedience. Obedience. And obedience leads to joy. It leads to joy. We live in a world, and this is so true of of us Christians as well. We live in a world that is consumed with happiness. Consumed with happiness. And it revolves around the temporal, the trite, the trivial. And yet what Jesus will produce in our lives 
is a prayer life that is that is kingdom oriented, a love that is transformative, sacrificial, and redemptive, an obedient response to the will of God, and a lasting, deep, abiding joy. Because joy is not dependent on money. You can have it when you don't have money. Joy is not dependent on health. You can have it on your dying bed. You can have it if you live in a persecuted country and you're threatened with loss of life or limb simply because you're a follower of Christ. You can have joy. It's what the apostles had in Acts 5 when they were beaten and they left rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. And most of the time I'm bent out of shape when people don't reciprocate my affection, my interest, and they differ with me. It just bends me out of shape because I want to control my world and my environment. And yet the Lord longs to do something more weighty, more substantial, more significant. And that comes as a result of a living relational dynamic in which I'm abiding in Him and He's abiding in me. Well, how does that happen? It happens when I'm consistently exposed to the Word of God. And it washes over my life like like the shower that I will take in the morning and God's Word washes over me. When I meditate upon it, when I fix it in my mind, when I hear it sung, when I, when I hear in my CD player the song, Knowing You, There is no greater thing than knowing you. John Piper, tremendous, tremendously fruitful pastor. Boy, if this is true of John, it sure is true for me as well. He says, I have to daily preach these things into my life, preach them into my life, press them into my soul, or they will be lost and slip away by a consumeristic culture that has other priorities and values. So on the last night of his life, prior to the resurrection, in John 15, Jesus says to 11 men, Abide in me, and I will abide in you. And by me, you will bear much fruit. The kind of fruit that will glorify God. Because no one would look at you and know that you're capable of producing that in your own power and your own strength. Honestly, the things that we most gravitate toward are the things that will magnify us in the eyes of people and they'll think we're something. They'll think we're something. We're smart. We're handsome. We're accomplished. We're intelligent. We're successful. Jesus calls us to look away from that and to live in such a manner that people will see in your weakness the glory of God, because they will know it's not possible to love like that. It's not possible to have joy when your world's fallen apart. It's not possible to live a life that's shaped by the values of the Word of God. It's not possible to pray for your enemies. It's just not possible. It's only possible because you're a branch and you're connected to a vine who will supply those things that will make much of God. Father, as we close in prayer tonight, we pray that you would press the truth into our souls tonight. Would you lift on a Wednesday night in the middle of a busy week, 
would you lift our eyes and help us to see beyond the things that weighed us down tonight and realize that you've called us to an eternity, an eternity of, of bearing the kind of fruit in which you will be honored. Would you grant that, Father, for Christ's sake, the one in whom only we must abide. And in his name we ask it. Amen.